This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I have attorney Chris Finney out of St. Louis. Uh, his firm is Finney Injury Law. Uh, Chris recently got a really good verdict on a non-catastrophic case, uh, a case with a broken arm. And, you know, he, I saw where he had posted on a group that we are both in uh, about all the things he did to get the verdict. And, and honestly, my experience is a lot harder to get a good verdict without a catastrophic injury than it is to get a, a big verdict, you know, when you have a death or paralysis or something. Um, and I wanted to learn from you, and I'm hoping other people do too. So. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, I listen to you all the time, so I'm, you know, very excited to talk to you about some stuff and hear what you have to say, to be honest with you. Sure. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I am from St. Louis. Uh, I went to school here in St. Louis pretty much all my life. Um, I'm one of seven children. My dad was actually a uh, plaintiff's lawyer, is a plaintiff's lawyer. And I ended up going to law school because, uh, candidly, um, it was kind of the thing to do back in 2008 and uh, everybody who went paid for it. And so did that, got out um, and, you know, in law school, I wanted to try cases, I guess, just seemed like the thing to do and um, started the prosecutor's office, went there a couple years and got offered uh, a job at an insurance defense firm. And it was double my pay. And I, you know, had all this stuff that was really cool. And I lasted like, honestly, three months there. (laughs) I think my, my last month, I billed 17 hours and I just I quit and uh, told my dad. I joined up with my dad, did that for a few years and then went out on my own. And um, now we're you know on my own here in St. Louis and uh, try a lot of cases in, in teams. You know, we co-counsel a lot because we have a small office um, and I've got you know, a wife and five kids of my own. And so wow. you know, that's where, where I'm at. What is it about the insurance defense practice that made you decide so quickly you didn't like it? Well, I, I was brought up plaintiffs, you know, in a plaintiff's house. And my uncle is actually, a, uh, his name's Don Schlaprizi. And he has a been practicing, I don't know, 50 years. He's an incredible plaintiff's lawyer uh, here in, in St. Louis. And so I had a little bit of a bent going in, but I remember I was sitting talking to my boss, who was a nice guy, uh, but he's a lifetime defense guy, insurance defense guy. And he said, you know, we had this client, it was a construction case. He built this retaining wall and, you know, he was one of 15 defendants. And he was saying, oh, we're really going to help our guy out. We're going to get him out of this mess, blah, blah, blah. And all I could think of in the back of my head was, I mean, we can get him out of this mess in like five seconds. Just call the plaintiff's lawyer, ask him what he wants, and we'll give it to him. And, our, <laughs> and it's not a penny out of our guy's pocket. He's totally, he's on his own. He's free. He's never has to hear from us again for the rest of his life. And uh, I actually said that to him. And I didn't get the best response. And, <laughs> and so then uh, I quit, you know, a few weeks after that, really, um, and, and just moved on. I, it wasn't it was not a good fit. And then, you know, when you're not in a good fit, you get resentful and things get angry and it's not a good. Fit. Yeah. Well, I'm proud of you for having uh, realized that and gotten out instead of trying to, well, I have to stick it out. I have to worry about what other people think and yeah. not look like a quitter because then you waste time. Yes. So since going out on the plaintiff side, what are the things you've done to develop yourself as a trial lawyer? Well, I th- actually, it's a, a good question. Um, when I was thinking about that, actually, over the last few days, because like, I have an associate now and I want to make sure he has all the opportunities that I had. Um, and I started to realize, man, I spent a lot of money on personal development or development as a trial lawyer, whether that's had been going to regionals for TLC or trial by human stuff or ethos with uh, Rick Friedman or Sorry De La Mott stuff. Um, I think 
putting all those things together, doing trial guide seminars, those things have uh, really been stuff that I've worked on to kind of develop myself, my comfort level with, with who I am and, and how I try cases, not how other people try cases. And then, of course, Michael, I've done a, a lot of therapy and I still do it. I think it's a very valuable tool, um, a self-exploration tool that helps identify, you know, I, I, I guess I should say when you're in the courtroom and in trial, your personal insecurities or faults are magnified. I mean, there's an audience. Yeah. There. And if you uh, don't have uh, the, the awareness or, and I don't want to say control, but just the understanding of who you are and what it is, it gets to be ugly and goes south real fast. And that case is over. And so that was really my initiation to therapy is I don't like how I'm reacting uh, in, in these situations. And I want to know why, because I want to prevent it. And then all this work with sorry. And, you know, I trial by human and Rick Friedman. Those are, those things are, I think are the most important for my personal development as trial lawyer. Yeah, I've personally found, you know, I'm, I'm a believer that, well, I think everyone in the world could use some therapy, but I think trial lawyers, not only in just what we do uh, for a living, just trying cases and kind of putting your fate in the hands of random strangers uh, <laughs> is something that you need to get your head on straight or, or kill you because, you know, a lot of the times we have a lot to do with winning and losing cases, but not everything. And a lot yeah. of times you can try the best case in the world, but either the one, the facts weren't there or two, you know, you just, you didn't have the right jury and it's really easy to let that get you down. And then there's all the secondary trauma. I mean, you know, when, especially on the bigger cases, you know, you're dealing, you're talking to widows, people that lost their kids, people lost their parents or people that will you know, have horrific injuries and it, it really does affect you. And if you don't take care of yourself, it's so easy to fall in and succumb to demons, you know, drug use, alcohol use, uh, from me eating too much, you know, whatever it is. Yes. That was one of the main things that I would, I would go to these seminars as a younger lawyer and I'd see that everybody was divorced or something like that. And I'd be like, yeah. I, I love my wife. I don't want to get divorced. You know, I don't want to be divorced. And it was almost like a badge that people were wearing and, uh, and they weren't bragging about it, but it was a common theme through a lot. And that's how I kind of get more into the trial by human. Cause I was like, all right, there has to be, you don't have to sacrifice your entire life to do, just this stuff or be good at it. You have to have some kind of balance. And Absolutely. Sorry. And all that stuff. She's kind of, we've kind of developed those types of things. Yeah. I found that the sorry mindset work and the therapy work yeah. uh, kind of go together. Yes. If that makes any sense because they're different. I mean, sorry, Delamont's not a therapist. I mean, she's mm -hmm. helping, she does help you with mindset, but she's not going to go delve deep into your personal, at least mm -hmm. not with me. Because uh, yeah. she's not trying to do therapy, she's trying to make you a better trawler. Um, whereas the, the therapist will help with issues, but not necessarily things that are going to be directly applicable to courtroom mindset. So I find that doing both, uh, and you know, there's just no better investment than investing in yourself. Yeah. And so I guess you have then decided rather than just picking one person or one group to be a disciple of, uh, you're doing this kind of, I think, what. Uh, Rich Newsom calls mixed method ad advocacy. Yes. Yeah, and I do I do trial school stuff too, but um, it, it's I, I don't think you can. Uh, my experience early on was uh, I tried to do this one system exactly exactly how they said it and wear everything that they wore and do what they did, and I got like just not good results, and it was incredibly frustrating. I'd try a case and come back and get all this, you know, the, the people that weren't in the arena would tell me what they thought, which was nice, but it was kind of like after the fourth or fifth time, it was like, guys, uh, maybe I just am not good at this, you know, but then we, I, I started to hear about um, Nick Rowley and what they were doing and you take bits and pieces. And, and I, what I really liked what he was saying was the freedom to try the stuff on. If you don't like it, don't do it. And then you do some Mitnick and you try some of that on and you just, you go with what you wear, what fits you and utilize it. And then you have that authenticity. And I think it's, you know, for me, luckily I've, it's, it's produced some decent results. I hope they continue, but yeah. it's a solid, you know, I think you don't have to pick one. Absolutely. I agree. I think, you know, you do need to study something well enough to master the technique. I mean, I think there's a danger of just kind of like reading every book and, you know, yeah. say, I'm going to spend 20 minutes on this and 30 minutes on that. I mean, you, I, I think you need to go to some seminars, do some practice, get some coaching so you can learn the different methods, but then you got to find out what, what aspects of each one of them to credit. You know, it's almost like we each have to create our own. I mean, we don't have to yeah. each write a book and, you know, try to create a, a following, but we need to find 
for us to be authentic and powerful in the courtroom, what is it that we need? Yes, you got to put your stamp on it. And so how many cases have you tried since you become a plaintiff's lawyer? Uh, since I became a plaintiff's lawyer, I'm, I'm probably right at under 20. Um, I had some as a prosecutor and I had a couple, um, actually only a couple that I was allowed to second chair as an insurance defense lawyer. Um, but since in, I've been practicing now 11 years, and so the majority have been as a plaintiff's lawyer. And that's good to hear. I mean, the, you know, you hear this myth that you can't get a trial anymore and that, you know, it's too hard to get trial experience. You know, that's an easy excuse, I think, for most people. It's an easy excuse because if you go to docket call, well, we go to now WebEx or Zoom docket calls. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you want a trial setting, you can get them. And there are in Missouri here, there are very creative ways to get quick trial settings. I mean, I've been able to get trial settings from the data injury to verdict would be six months. And it's just, you have to kind of think outside the box. And part of, uh, I think the resistance to getting to trial is there's that, well, everybody's always done it this way. You know, everybody's yeah. done it this way. Well, okay. Who cares? You know, whatever, try a different way. And if it doesn't work, you know, go, you know, you can always go back to the old way. I think the biggest obstacle in cases, um, the no one wants to admit this is the fear of losing. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, I guess when you lose, you, gotta, you yeah. deal with the fear like me if you lost. But I, it's the fear of losing. And it's also, I think, goes with that is your, the shame. You know, I mean, it's, it's who wants to get up there and say they asked for five million bucks and got skunked or, you know, or they had a rear ender and they got a zero dollar verdict like I have. I mean, it's with an independent eyewitness who backed your story. I mean, it's, it happens. It happens. It's funny because, you know, you watch, uh, let's say, professional athletes. No one expects, a professional athlete to never lose a game. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, Tom Brady has lost plenty of football games, but he's, you know, a lot of people would argue he's the greatest quarterback of all time, whether he is, or, I mean, I mean, he's definitely yeah. awesome. He just uh, got shut out last week. Yeah. I mean, just nine to zero. Yeah. So it's, I mean, he's not going to quit and not go back next week. Cause he didn't score this week. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, and I think we have to kind of adjust our mindsets that, you know, we go in there, we do everything we can, and it's great when we win. And, I th and we can do a lot of things to in increase our odds of winning mm -hmm. and increase our odds of getting a bigger verdict. But there's no guarantees, and, you know, no one remembers your losses. No, they don't. They really don't. I mean, I made – I was talking to a friend of mine because he was he wanted to ask about the trial. And he's a good, good close friend of mine in, in the local state bar or whatever. And I, I told him, I was like, well, the last three had gone really poorly, you know, really poorly, you know, low verdicts or defense verdicts. And he was like, I had – no idea that you had had three that did not go well at all. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's just part of the deal, but nobody remembers. They, they don't dwell on them. It's like anything. Yeah. They just remember your wins. It's, it's yeah. crazy, but it, it, so there's no, for those of you listening that are you know worried, as long as it makes economic sense for your client to try the case, as long mm -hmm. as the risk, you know, there's some offers that are so big that, that it's in the client's best interest, but if it's not, and as long as all state insurance is in business, there's plenty of offers that do not provide any real economic benefit yeah. to the client. There's no way everybody's being fair. Yeah, they're not being fair to everybody. It's just not, it doesn't happen. So what are some of the things you've learned uh, that you've been able to incorporate in trials that you personally find helpful? Uh, I So what I've really think lately that, that we've, we've been able to implement is um, more of some of that speed trial stuff with Joe Freed is really trying to simplify. I mean, I think this last trial was a day and a half um, and we got it done real quick. We had, I don't know, six or seven witnesses. We had a few more that we didn't even call. Um, didn't think, just wasn't necessary. You know, I just, just sent them on their way. And that's kind of like, as we try more cases in our office, we're getting a better feel of, you know, the jurors got it. You know, okay, if they don't have it now, they're not gonna get it. Why are we wasting our time? I'm not gonna pound them with another witness to tell the same story. So right. I think the, the shorter, the better. And even, you know, shorter opening statements, um, shorter examinations. I know that uh, sometimes, you know, we around here, we, a lot of our treating doctors are by video deposition for trial and they're edited. And we have tried, we work really hard to get those down to 10, 11 minutes because, it, you know, whoever sat there and listened to a doctor on video drone on for 20, 30, 40, 50 an hour. I mean, that is something's not working out right. It's either too complicated or the jurors are, are very bored. So uh, brevity and, and, and being concise about really paring down what's important uh, has, has helped us a, a lot. And it helped keep our focus because 
like any trial lawyer, you guys, you, we all get really into the cases, really right. into the cases. And, and you think this is really, I need to point out this fact. I got to find a way to get this in. Well, nobody cares about that fact. Probably, you know, it's like, does it really, is it something in the instruction they need to know? Or are you just trying to get some aggravating circumstances that don't really have to do with your damages? And part of that is us discerning that line, cutting away that stuff and then going with what really the case is about and then keeping the focus on that while still learning the case. Yeah. And I think a part of that is just learning to trust yours because, you know, I think we over, we, we put in too much. We put in, well, they might not, they might not buy this theory. So I got to put these other three theories in and, you know, this, I got this wood witness saying it, but I got to find yeah. five more saying the same thing because they might yeah. not believe or they might be sleeping through it. And then, then we make the case boring and confusing and, and we look like we're insecure about it yes. um, because like our you're... actions and our words aren't matching up. Yeah. It's like Rick Friedman says, he's like, well, why talk about one issue when 17 will do, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> like, that's what you learn in law school and it's, and, yeah. but the case is mostly about one issue or two issues. That's really what it comes down to. I've really, come to the conclusion that a plaintiff cannot win plaintiffs can only win simple cases and that any case is a simple case it just takes a lot of work to get there yes i and that's what i mean i completely agree with that but it, finding what like you said before having the trust that this i have the simple this is the issue you know I, I believe this is the right one we got to focus on let's go with that let's not worry about any of this other stuff let it go um and then move forward the trust to do that um, takes a takes a lot, I guess, in, in your personal exploration and developing who you are, but also trusting your teammates. You know, hey, we, we're, we're on the right path. Let's keep rolling. Yep. You know, it took me actually working with Sorry to realize that my biggest obstacle to the bigger verdicts was not trusting the jurors. And when you don't trust people, they're not going to do the right thing for you. Well, was it like you were afraid to ask them for the money or was it that you're just like, they're not going to get it. I got to I got to really hammer it home. I asked him for the money. Uh, I just did. I don't know. I just when you don't trust somebody and you're worried they're going to reject you, it's kind of like this is a bad example, but like when you're looking for someone to date, you're a little bit insecure. Yeah. But once you have a girlfriend, like other women, were more attracted to. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. you're not you're not worried about it. You you know, yeah. you know I don't know. That's probably not the best example for trial. But when you when you just trust that someone's going to do the right thing and you treat them that way, they're more likely to do it. Whereas if you're let me tell you, I want to prove this to you. I don't know. It's just, you're like sounding desperate and, and you're yeah. not as trustworthy. Yeah. When you're trying to ram it down their throat, they're not going to, it's not going to do very well. Yeah. So, uh, so you've done trial lawyers college regional. Have you been to the ranch or whatever they're doing? Now? I haven't been. Yeah. I don't know what's going on with it now, but I haven't been there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's had been a goal of mine. Um, but you know, I, had a lot of kids. They're younger. And I, I know that's not an excuse when you talk to everybody who's been. I know that I think you've been. Um, and they're like, well, you just got to go. You just got to go. Well, I'll be honest with you. I want to go when I want to go. I don't want to force myself to go. So I'd like to do that. I really would. But I also want to make sure I'm not constantly worried about the stress that everybody's under at back home. So I agree um, with you. I, I yeah. went before I was even married, so it was okay. easy. <laughs> it's a different uh, story. It yeah. was very easy, and and I am no longer involved. Not because I mean, there's two groups. I like people in both of them, yeah. uh, but I am not going to give up that much of my time away from my kids while I still have kids that want to talk to me. I I agree <laughs> with you. I mean, that is uh, you know, I love my kids. It's something I yeah. really want to be around them. I enjoy their being around them. I, I enjoy being around my wife. I like going home at the end of the day. I look forward to going home at the end of the day. And I think that's one of the things I guess I figured out kind of with sorry and through other therapy is um, drawing those healthy boundaries and also being patient with myself as, hey, you don't have to get it all done in three years. You know, just because so-and-so got a $25 million verdict when they were 38, you don't have to have one when you're 38. Like, just relax. And um, yeah. that it, it, that takes some really pumping of the brakes. But, you know, it helps when you can you have supportive people around you. You have a, a understanding spouse, things like that. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D E 
C-A-L-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. So how, how are you able to practice at a high level and then have time to see your wife and five kids? Uh, like any lawyer, any good trial practice, I think I'll tell you, it starts with their, you know, from the foundation, which is the staff. And um, so it really starts with the trust in them and then hiring the right people. You know, everybody, I, I have had uh, fits and starts in the wrong hiring. And then you try to fix that immediately, at least I do. But when you have somebody good or people that are good, I try to make sure that they feel valued, that they have some kind of ownership um, and, and go from there. Because I'd like to think I'm more of a hands-off guy because you say there's, we, we don't have a ton of files, but say I'm looking at 15 or 20 of them um, and trying to keep on track of those ones in litigation that are going to get going for trial. Um, somebody else has got to be handling all the other stuff, you know, and somebody else has got to be handling the bills and you got to trust that they're doing it. And we also have a network of vendors, you know, we're all small business owners um, and you have to trust them to do it. And if you have those relationships in place and parameters for those relationships, like, um, you know, you, you design that alliance, you could say uh, they will, you know, there's expectations that are met about who's supposed to be doing what. And then also um, the power of, of it's a cliche, but saying no, if, you know, if a case is difficult, whether it's the client or we some information, we don't hesitate to cut them loose. Um, we have even no matter how big it is or how easy of a fee it could be. Um, it just we, we just let go of two today because. We're not going to deal with abuse from clients. You know, our yep. people are too valuable. And if you want to call up and abuse somebody, you're not calling here. You know, call somewhere else and find a different lawyer. Um, or if you're not going to hold up your end of the bargain, you know, we're putting work in and you've got to keep us up to speed as to what's going on. If you don't tell us, then you're, you know, we don't have time for you because um, it's a disservice to all the other clients that are doing it. So part of it has been developing healthy boundaries. Main part of it has been having a really good uh, um, office set up. And then you can have the freedom, I think, to kind of go wherever. And let's be honest, technology allows us to do a ton of stuff from a ton of places. Yeah. Um, we can do work. I'm an early guy, so I can do work at five in the morning if I want, you know, so I can be home by 3.30. It's not, there's there's no uh, stopping any of that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. You said that you try to make your good employees feel valued. What do you do to do that? I, I try to reassure them or assure them that there is no decision and no move that they will make that is catastrophic. Nothing that they can do is going to sink us. You know, I'd rather them do something than yeah. do nothing because I, I think maybe you've talked about this before. I know I've heard other people talk about it. If they're running in here every five minutes to ask you a question about, well, this records company or this summary wasn't right, or we need to, I think we need to order these records. You'll get nothing done and they don't have any value that what's right that's something I can do myself if I'm going to put out all those fires. So part of it is a comfort with mistakes yeah. and just, you know, a preparation that, Hey, if a mistake happens, we can fix it. You know, it's not going to sink it and letting them know that nothing that I'm, that we're doing together is going to sink, sink us. It's just not going to happen. If something is going to sink us and they're handling it and I'm not aware of it, it's my fault. Um, a lot of it is kind of taking ownership of, of those issues. Great. I'm always looking for ways to be better at that, especially in this current uh, employment environment. You know, we're trying to proactively make our people feel good so that we don't lose them. That That is what I'm worried about. But, I, you know, also giving them freedom, you know, but but you, you can give them a time. I think, you know, what do I know? I don't have that many employees, but you can give them freedom. But I think as long as everybody understands that for our practice, it's a trial practice. So if you want to go out of town in July for a week or whatever it is, that's fine. But if we have a trial that week, none of us are going out of town and, and we're all in the same boat. I expect you to, to be with us. Yeah. If you want to go out of, town, out of town in August, great. Go out of town in August. But, you know, when we need you, we're all here. And you had a recent verdict. Uh, I think you had a $750,000 verdict on a broken arm case where you, I think your pretrial offer was what, 70000 Yes. That was, yeah. Okay. Tell me about the, tell me a little bit about that case, the facts of them. Um, just, a t it's a case that I think, uh, almost everybody, I assume everybody listening has in their cabinet of cases. Uh, it's, was a head on collision. Well, driver was either texting or doing something. We don't really know. He crossed the center line, hit our client. She's holding the wheel 
and her right arm fractures, radius and ulna. Uh, she gets, she has surgery to fix the, the to reduce the fracture. And um, that was in October of 2018. By December of 2018, she's released from treatment. She skips her last um, surgeon's appointment in January. She had strep throat, never re rescheduled it. And, um, you know, she kind of made her way through the, we made our way through the process. Uh, I'll be very open and honest. I thought we were going to settle the case for a hundred. That was the policy. I repeatedly asked for a hundred, probably four times. Um, first offer was 50. Uh, then they never got above 70. And, you know, I, in September, I sent them a letter. I said, listen, we're about to spend on an animation. You know, we're about to spend on the doctor. You're at 70. We're at 100. I think if you put the policy up, which is that we can probably get it done. Otherwise, I'm going to spend this money and it's going to make it cost prohibitive to even settle at 100 after I spend it. And they never answered, just didn't even respond until they called me the day before the doctor's depot and asked, well, what can we do to get this done? I said, I already spent the money. I, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know. And they said, well, we're never paying above 100. Well, then I guess, I don't know, I can't, you know. Only one way to make you pay over a hundred. So if you don't want to do it on your own, I guess we'll find out. And I could be wrong, um, but we'll try it. And so, a great, really, I think the keystone to it was we had a great client. And I know everybody says that about their verdicts, but if there are common themes about verdicts that don't have catastrophic harms, um, at least catastrophic physical harms, it's it's the clients. And that took me a while to learn. You know, oh, just you could do anything, any kind of case if the defendant's conduct was that bad. Well. You know, I think I've heard jurors take money from people they don't like and give it to people they do. You know, that's <laughs> kind of what happens. And so they don't like your person or they don't like you. It's not going to work out. So our lady, she did everything we asked her to do in terms of preparing for trial. And we're a type of office that spends nobody's going to be hassling you around here if you're at the client's house for days on end. You know, that to me is beneficial. Um, and, if, and if it's a case we've set, we're, we're going to try don't worry about the paperwork. We'll take care of that another time. Spend the time with the client. And the more time we spent with her and her before and after witnesses or really her family, um, well, I started to think we could do pretty well and that they were missing the boat, even though she performed very well in her depot, too. It's not like they weren't aware of who she was. And um, I thought, all right, well, we're going to get I think we can get a good verdict. Let's see what happens. Um, and I tried it with my associate, who's more than an associate, but, uh, you know, and um, we fortunately it, it worked out worked out well in this instance. How much were your were your economic specials? They're fourteen thousand. We, we waived them. We waived everything. And what's what was behind your decision to waive you know the economic losses? Um, well, you know, there's the psychological parts of anchoring and all that stuff. But I got to be honest with you, Michael. It's just my experience in Missouri, we have a build and paid statute. So you, you got the build and you got that in Texas. So they, they, uh, why create a fight in front of the jury that wastes their time about something nobody even cares that my client didn't even really pay? You know, that was the subrogation amount. And so we've never, I've never, uh, in any of the cases I've tried, had past special damages in the case, um, even if they've been hundreds of thousands of dollars. I really? just don't, yeah, I just don't. Um, because if that's the case, I'm asking for $5 million or seven or 10 or whatever. And what's 300 grand, you know, it, we don't have to do it in Missouri. We only have one line for damages. You don't have to parse out economic or non-economic. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's any damage is what our instruction says. So we leave it out and um, it does kind of confound the defense because all they do is harp on there's no medical bills in this case that becomes their theme. And it's like, well, no shit. I told them that those are the first words out of my mouth. That's no surprise. Um, and so we waive those and just focus on, you know, you tell them from the outset, this is going to be a case about non-economic damages, pain and suffering. You know, these are the type, you, these are cases that are under the law can be brought. So she hadn't gone to the doctor in almost three years. What were the harms and losses that you presented? So, so our client um, is, she's married, but she's in her forties and doesn't have children. Uh, and she was one of five, the oldest of five who had kind of a rougher upbringing. She, around the time she's 12 or 13, you know, she really did found out who her dad was, wasn't who she thought her dad was. Um, her mom kind of worked nights, kind of a bartending type lifestyle. So by the time she was 11, 12, 13, she's taking care of babies. She's putting kids to bed. She's getting them ready for school. So she had 
I don't want to call it a motherly instinct, but a strong family instinct um, that had developed and it had carried over with her siblings. I mean, this is a type of bond with their siblings that, you know, one of the one of the sisters said can only be formed through trauma and they have um, children and the nieces and nephews were the biggest part of her life. And so we made the case about the nieces and nephews and the loss of those life experiences and then brought in the aunt, the, the sisters and the aunt to, to talk about it. Was she still suffering pain or any limitation at the time of trial? She was. She was. She suffers daily issues where she takes Advil. She's a pharmacy tech, so she's always using her hands um, and she can't do that type of stuff anymore. Now, there weren't any records of that, uh, but it was um, testimony that she was going to offer. And she did. And you said you had before and after witnesses. Why do you do that instead of just having your client talk? Because our belief is, I guess I should say, my opinion is jurors don't want to give money to a person who a woe is me person. You know, right. talk about all the problems. I think they want to give money to people who they think are going to do good with it, who are going to make, uh, it's going to, you know, move forward in their life in a positive way. And so our client to us is always going to be positive. She's always going to speak well. She's always going to be strong. She's always going to do um, what a good person would always do. And then you can bring in, uh, and she's not going to minimize her losses, but then you bring in the, right. the sisters and everything to say, okay, she told us this. They heard this. Let's talk about this. What's really going on here? And then have them tell the truth. And most people probably, I think a lot of people do that type of technique. So let's talk about some of the things you did. And one of the things, reasons I want to talk to you is I was really impressed by your list of things you did to prepare for this trial. So let's talk about what are some of the things you did to get ready to learn the story and figure out how to tell the story of this trial? Well, um, number one, we spent a lot of time with her. Okay, we did a ton of that and we had her do a lot of writing for us. Um, and our, my associates spent a lot of time with her. So the weeks leading up, we spent a ton of time with her, but we also focused on ourselves um, because I think if we couldn't identify with her losses, we weren't going to be able to effectively portray them. And that meant since she was a family person, Alex led better in my office and I were, he has four kids, I have five, we're both family people. Um, we wanted to focus on our families. What's, you know, be more aware of who that is, what's important about it and health, because all our cases really are about a loss of some kind of health. So we, we really were big on, on staying healthy and, you know, making sure we were getting the sleep. We needed all those types of things to, to make sure we showed up in, in the right mindset. That is so important. And it's so easy to go work till, you know, midnight, two, three in the morning during trial. And at least as I've gotten older, it doesn't work for me very well. I just never, I mean, I used to do that too, but it's so what happens to me is the, the ideas don't really improve, just the quantity of ideas go. And so exactly. now I'm writing a million things in my trial notebook that now it's just word vomit all over the page. And it's like, I'll even flip back a few pages and be like, hell, that was a really good idea from, I don't even know when I wrote that, but that was good. Yeah. And I forgot about it. Um, yeah. I think it's good to have all those ideas down because you're not sure how the evidence is going to come out and you can kind of pick and choose. But I, I do believe shutting it down at a certain time and I'd rather get up earlier than stay up later. Um, and, and doing it that way is probably where uh, the, uh, the good stuff came from. I, I agree with you hundred percent. I, I, I work real hard now in trial and getting as much sleep as I can, taking a full day off the week before. Yep. Uh, just, you want to, you need to be present and ready and all that big busy work you need to do like weeks or months in advance and not while you're there. Uh, now, what did you do, I guess, different than the way a lot of people do jury selection as far as your approach and how you did it? So, yeah, I mean, this was after some work with Sari and I listened to some things from Mark Wayham that she had an interview with. It was the, the, and you can probably, maybe see it on my board back there where I took the notes. But um, the idea was let's get people who want to be there. You know, we're we're in, in, and this was a busy week for us in St. Louis County civil trials. when We tried this. I was stunned how many jury trials were going on. But you weren't getting a big panel. You were getting we wanted 48 or something like that. We got 32. Uh, there was a murder trial going on, you know, where they got 100 jurors. We didn't even get a panel on Monday. We got them Tuesday. So I, I was concerned about people being dragged down there, all that. So it's like, all right, let's find people who want to be here. You know, who, who wants to? If you don't want to be here, you tell me. I'll do whatever I can to get you off the jury. But you got to talk because if you don't talk, you don't walk. And if you don't start speaking with me and let me know why you don't want to be here, I can't tell him you don't want to be here because there's three people that are involved in this decision. 
I'm just one of them. So if you want to leave and you don't want to be on a case like this, you have to help me out. Is that fair? And, and then, you know, so then you set it up that way. And how many of the jurors that you had on the panel wanted to be there? Well, I didn't get to talk to all of them, but the juror I talked to afterwards, and I got a letter from another juror a couple of days after the trial. I, I, I really wanted to, I said, Hey, did you want to, my first question, did you want to be here? Did, he's like, absolutely. I thought it was important. When I heard the case, I heard what was going on. I think we all back there wanted to be here. We wanted to do what we were supposed to do. And I, and I just thought, and I, I was like, I, I, I gave a big pat on the back and said, God bless you. God bless you. But um, you know, it, it, that type of mindset, knowing that they want to be here rather than I dragged them here um, helped with the connection throughout the trial. And the, uh, how was it hard to go from the mindset or, or were you ever with the mindset as I got to go do jury selection as deselection. I got to oh, find yeah. the people that I want off. What was it like to go from the mental attitude as I got to find all the bad people to the, I want to find the people that want to be here. Yeah. It's the easiest way to describe it. It's just softer. You know, it, you, you don't go from, you don't immediately go defensive. You know, I mean, it's like if somebody says something bad, you don't think, oh, sh you know, everyone's now going to think that, you know, that whole when I was a prosecutor, they taught us about poisoning the jury pool. I know that I've never seen that actually happen. In fact, I think the other the opposite would be true is that if somebody's an outlier saying something stupid. A rational person will step up and be like, no, that's not exactly right. So yeah. it took away um, that kind of maybe hard defenseness that I would have. That, you know, I would really get nervous if some, a lot if like three or four guys in a row said something bad. You know, now, oh, man, we're this is going south as opposed to, OK, relax. It's not that big of a deal. You know, if they don't want to be here, I don't want them here. And if the panel blows, great. Come back another time. We know the yeah. case. We're ready. So it definitely softened that. But it also allowed, um, I think, a more respectful tone with those people who did not want to be there. And I read that you, you were working on trying to create what's called a designed alliance. And that's a sorry to my term. Well, maybe you should have someone else. I, I, I learned it from sorry. First of all, Keith, what do, what do you mean by designed alliance? So um, I've done Path to Mastery with Sari and, and a lot of her stuff. Um, and, you know, it, it's a term that she's coined designed alliance, but it's really about, you know, managing and meeting expectations. Okay. If we're going to enter in a relationship, I want to tell you what I expect and you can, and I want to know what you expect. And let's, let's, make it happen. And I think I've heard a, uh, a very uh, good, uh, you'd call him a life coach. His name's Jason Selk. And he used to coach, be like the life coach for the Cardinals and their team therapist. And they won all these World Series and stuff like that. And he said, you know, almost every relationship fails because of missed expectations, missed expectations. And so I've been to some of his stuff and then sorry said that. And it's like, OK, you know, everybody's got to be on the same page. So when you design the alliance, it's like, hey, this is my role. This is your role. This is what I'm going to be looking for. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what they're going to do. And, you know, he can he's this person and we're all going to do our job. We're hoping that you do your job. Can I trust you to do yours? I'll do mine. And you kind of work from there so that the expectations of the jurors are met. It kind of puts you also, I think, in more of that teacher mode, yeah. um, which is a powerful place to be. Absolutely. You know, a lot of times in, in uh, jury selection, people just focus on the questions that they're trying to use to get people off for cause. Mm -hmm. You ask some other kinds of questions, what I think you call them experiential questions. Yes. Yeah. Experiential questions. What are those? So um, there you could call them issue based questions. You know, and one thing I've noticed the more cases we try, if I got six or seven experiential questions, I, that may not be the case we should be trying. You know, I tried to keep it to one or two. And in this case, um, and it was kind of built off what I, what sorry, or whoever calls a fears list. Okay. What is, what am I worried about in my case? One of them we talked about earlier was end of treatment in over three years. I mean, this is, you know, crazy. It's over three years, no treatment. Um, and the medical records at her last appointments said zero out of zero pain, excellent recovery, no restrictions, all that stuff. So I wanted to ask, you know, who has experience with, you know, um, seeing a surgeon or having a surgery or who in your arm and plates and screws. What is that like? OK, uh, tell me more about that. And it was just more to kind of um, 
get to know them. But if I had already set up the alliance in the beginning and everything was going well, they would feel more comfortable sharing their experience about it. And, and then I'm getting to know a little bit more about them, their feelings about something that's important in the case. The medical records were a big one as well, because, you know, everybody, I think in every jury, you're going to have a, a, a nurse or some kind of medical records person. And uh, and we did. She was juror number six before she was struck. And I asked, you know, who has experience with medical records and what's what's written in them? And she raised her hand and, OK, well, tell me about your experience. Well, I, you know, we, we write a lot of notes and charts and stuff like that. And I said, well, have they ever have you ever noticed any inaccuracies or are they always usually accurate? Oh, they're always accurate. Very accurate. I was like, OK, all right. And that tells me about her that, number one, she has experience with an issue in the case. She's raised her hand to speak. She's likely a leader who's going and who the people around her are already in the box are going to defer to her. And she has probably some knowledge, uh, uh, general knowledge about records and stuff that probably don't apply to our case, but are going to influence her opinions of it. Right. So it's identifying information, stuff like that. Enjoying the episode? Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. I read you talking about something called the box as far as like what information the jury should and should not consider. Uh, I really would like to learn about that. That's something I'd like to try. So I would tell everybody, you know, if you li- listen to Mark Wham's uh, Facebook interview with, with uh, sorry, and that's sorry, De La Mod, because that's where I got it. I'm sure it's not unique to him. I'm sure it's been around, but I was going to, I was like, all right, I had a feeling they're going to concede liability at trial or before trial. So they did the Monday before, but they never updated their pleading. So there was a whole other issue that, you know, well, judge, I don't think they really did anything, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, so in jury selection, I thought, you know, folks, this is, here's the, you know, your only job in this case is going to be deciding the damages, the dollar amount of the equal trade dollar value, whatever, whatever you like to say, the, the number that is the fair, reasonable, 100% of damages. And that's inside this box. That's your job is inside the box. Who pays it, what pays it, how it's paid, if it's paid, when it's paid, all that stuff is for the judge. All right. Are you going to trust the judge to do his job? You know, no one's going to say no because he's right. sitting there in a black row. We called him on, you know, it's like, you know, they'll raise their hand and say, yeah. And I say, okay, we need to trust you to do your job. So who's, who's going to have trouble? staying in the box. Who's going to want to know some of these other things to reach a decision? And, and I can, especially when it comes to millions of dollars and all, then now the hands start going up and I need to know this information. Well, is there insurance involved? Well, if I answer it one way, it's unfair to one side, I answer it another, it's unfair to that side. That's regardless if they are or not, it has nothing to do with what your job is. And I wasn't, I, I, I tried that on a few times, role playing in my head, stuff like that. It felt good. It looked good when Mark Wham was talking about it. And um, it felt good when we were doing it in Vordire. So I re-referenced it in closing, you know, to stay inside the box. And sure enough, that the juror I got to speak to afterwards, he told me they started to talk, they decided on a number. And then they said, well, what about, what's she going to do with all this money? And where's she going to go? She could go to Disneyland 750 times or whatever. You know, he, he said he stopped him and said, no, 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 no. That is not our role. We guys, we have to stay inside the box. Uh, that That's is awesome. And I, it, it really helped. I mean, because um, part of his trust in the system, you know, we want the jurors to trust the system. You want us to trust them and their role in the system. And when he, when, when that hit home and he was able to relate that, I thought, okay, it was, you know, the idea of the box is so simple, but it's so concise because everyone can envision a box and you can draw it and it's got clear barriers around it. And you just put the dollar in there and everything else is outside it. There's no distinct, there's no trouble distinguishing what they're supposed to do and what everybody else is supposed to do. And so it's a clear visual for the jurors. It's easy to go back to. 
And if you have a quick trial, they're not going to forget that concept. So at least in my experience. I definitely am going to use that. I, yeah. I love that one. Uh, and that Mark Wham interview, you're talking, if people want to find that, that's in one of the Sorry, the Hostage Hero group. Correct, on, on Facebook. Facebook. Yeah, you got to go on Facebook and uh, get in there and, and and watch it there. I mean, Sorry has posts there every so often with, with good good try, people really trying cases that it's it's beneficial. Also, you also wrote you worked on your breathing in trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah. So I've been, uh, I'm a, I, I, this is odd to say out loud on a podcast, but I mouth tape my, my mouth at night. Okay. I tape it shut. So I just breathe through my nose. Um, sounds odd, but trust me, there's tons of studies, that, tons of books out there to support it. And so uh, I've been doing really hard on nasal breathing. I think it's very important to uh, not only control your, your anxiety or whatever it is, you, you control your sleep. Um, your health, sinus issues, whatever anybody has, it's really helped me. And so throughout the trial, I was made it a point that when an anxious point came up, you know, like for almost all of us, it's when your client's testifying, you know, there's nothing more anxiety inducing than them up there speaking. And, you know, I just focused on, okay, this is an anxious feeling, breathe it in, breathe it out, slow, controlled, this feeling will pass. This, this feeling will pass. It is just a feeling it will pass and trust that the work that you've done is there. And sure enough, she did. A, I mean, she, she knocked it out of the park, but it also kept me in my seat. That's, I think, the big key is I didn't, we didn't object one time in the trial. So it kept me in my seat, which also shows the jurors my confidence in the case. You know, yeah. hey, it's all right. She can handle herself. She's tough. I, I told you she's tough. Look, she's tough. Um, so that conscious effort on the breathing, which I've continued, I think uh, has made a, a, a demonstrable difference in approaches to trial and how we handle anxiety inducing situations. I think that's, that's brilliant. Uh, your spouse might look at you kind of weird when you have some tape across your mouth, but it, it definitely helps. Yeah. So how about what kind of COVID protocols did you have for your trial? So we had, um, we were prepared to try the case all in masks. You know, at, at this point, we've tried two cases in COVID and there were struggles to get to. And um, we, you know, I didn't care, whatever, we'll try to mask. We had to, if you were speaking, you did not have to wear a mask. Okay. Every, everyone else was masked. And what I did find out from the bailiff is the most jurors they would allow in the courtroom was 36. So they were only where they normally put in our courtrooms, six or seven to a bench, they were putting three. So they were spacing them out. So it was taking up all the room. So um, those were really the only protocols we had. There was nothing else beyond that. And did you use any kind of notes or anything when you were talking to jurors? No, no notes. Um, No notes throughout the entire trial. I mean, I had them, you know, you write them out, but they stayed out of sight, out of view. Um, Trusted my co-counsel, my associate Alex, on the jury selection to to get down what we needed to get down, and then also just kind of roll through. So there were we had we had no notes. Yeah. How about uh, you? Also wrote something about eye contact. Tell me about that. So that was the the juror who came out. I spoke to, and actually the juror who I got a letter from, both commented about how they they heard us. And the juror I spoke to said the you know when they all sat down and they said they felt a connection because I had made eye contact with everybody. Okay, when you have them, they have the masks on. So the really only thing you can look at is, you know, their eyes. Um, and but I, I was telling somebody the other day, I didn't really notice their masks because you can see so much. You pick up so much how their eyes are moving or we're the, if the masks raise a little bit that, you know, you can tell what's going on. You don't have to see their mouth. Um, and he said right when he came out, he said, you the first thing he chased us down, he said, you get a passing grade. I was like, oh, hey, I hope so. We got a good number. It feels good. And he said, um, all of us mentioned how you made eye contact with every single one of us and we felt included. And good. that is a good thing because you can have awkward eye contact, right? You can stare at people for too long. Um, but it's like you think about a quarterback. He's got that internal clock where he's got to get rid of the ball before he gets sacked, whether there's pressure or not. He just knows it. I think the same is with eye contact. You kind of have that couple beats of, did you get me? Do I read you? Do I see you? Do I feel you? All right, boom, let's move to somebody else. Um, and that, I, I felt that that was working in the trial and it, it seemed to, to stick and they, they noticed it. What did you do to learn to do, 
you know, what did you do to work on the eye contact as far as, you know, the, you have to first of all, learn how to make it. And then you have to learn, like you said, not to be creepy and just stare at somebody. I mean, uh, that's the therapy. You got to be comfortable in your own skin. People that are uncomfortable in their skin don't like silence. And then they fill the silence with words because it's uncomfortable. They don't like to look at you um, and you don't like to look at them or whatever it is. And part of it was, hey, I know who we are. I know what we represent. Losing is an option in this case. I want you all to know we're comfortable with it. And I'm prepared to to, to, to work with you, to look you, to see you uh, as to what this case is about. And I, it wasn't a creepy eye. I mean, obviously, I don't think it was a creepy eye contact, but it was yeah. a genuine eye contact, you know. And um, also, Mike, I'll say, you know, a lot of cases that I've tried, I mean, we've gotten good results and stuff like that. But, you know, I've also gotten zeros, gotten $500 verdicts. Um, and so there is an element of getting comfortable being uncomfortable. I mean, I yeah. think there is no practice you can get other than being in front of a live jury. I mean, you can do the focus groups and all that stuff. It's great, great practice. But, you know, it's like the Super Bowl only happens once a year. You yeah. know, so um, you got to be ready for it and try it. And just remember, you know, the winning is glorious and no one's going to eat you up if you lose. You know, yes. you're, you're going to be, or if you just do mediocre, I mean, it's, you just keep, you have to just keep at it and sooner or later you're going to hit it. Well, it's like you said that one, you, I think you've said, oh, well, you always have a nice bottle of wine, no matter what happens. Right. <laughs> and so, um, and you know, you're going to make it, you're going to be alive. Everything's going to be okay. And for me, it's, it's, it's not the wine, but it's like, it's, I want to go to a nice dinner with my wife after this. Yeah. I want to go out and not have to worry. We're going out no matter what, like number one, we're going to be okay. And number two, this is just a nice thing to do. So, and it's actually something I look forward to. I found myself yeah. like, let's get through this trial so I can get to dinner, you know, but <laughs> it wasn't like, a, but it was, it was some, it was like a carrot at the end of the stick. So in talking to, you got to talk to one jury, you say you got a letter from another one. What motivated them to give you so much? So they, they were all, they were out for 15 minutes and they did not ask for any exhibits. Okay, so immediately when that came in, I thought, oh, my Lord, we just we got absolutely spanked. Oh, yeah. man, I must have misread this entire thing. But they actually, the letter I got from the juror, she said she's confident neither side is happy with their number. And um, part of it was the, the juror I did talk to said that they only gave that number from the date of the incident up until the to trial, essentially. They didn't give any futures. Because they future pain and suffering because they couldn't, there wasn't anything in the records. They couldn't really quantify it. It was too difficult for them. So um, I think they really did understand that this was a severe change in her life that was unnatural. She didn't have anything to do with it. It pushed her, uh, it altered her relationships that she had worked to form over her entire life. And these jurors, um, they, they understood that those things had value. You know, if we're doing our job right in the jury selection, those who don't think those non-economic assets have value, well, hopefully you've identified them and, and then you can find out what to do with them. But nowadays, and I think you've probably heard a lot of guys say this and gals on your podcast say is, you know, jurors are, are more aware of their relationships. Uh, I don't know if that's personally the true the truth, um, but maybe they're more comfortable talking about them, I guess. I don't know if they value them any more than they did before, but at least they talk about them. Um, I haven't done enough, I guess, investigation to that, but they have no issue. Uh, and that's been my experience the last five or six years, no issues with non-economic pain and suffering, change in life type of damages. Um, and I think that they do, if the evidence is there, they think that has a ton of value. Yeah, I think we've all just gone through this collective experience where for at least periods of time, we've been isolated from people we care about and had mm -hmm. relationships interrupted because Zoom's great, but it's not the same as being there with somebody. Right. Uh, and I think, at least to me, you know, I'm making so much more of an effort to, to go see my parents. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. To, I'm, I'm having my first guy's trip with people I went to high school with, you know, 30 something years ago. Uh, that we're, we've, you know, we've kept in touch, but we would see each other once every few years. You know, I'd see one one friend here, but now we're all going to get together. Uh, I think because we've all realized how much we value these relationships and, you know, being cut off from them for a period of time. Um, 
kind of put everything in perspective and, and is making, at least for me, put, put more effort into family, friends, those kind of things. Yeah. So I can see how jurors can value it more. And, and all that stuff. I mean, when you, you know, you've done a ton of work on this stuff, you think about it, like that has a ton of value to you. That's an important trip. Yeah. You know, like it, you're going to move things to make that happen. Um, and I think the jurors get that as well. They understand that as well. Yeah. We even have a trial that week. And I just told Sonia, my partner, like, well, you're going to try that one without me. <laughs> just, I have to make a, I have to make yeah. a value choice. And you know, well, this particular trial, now if it was like a death case, I might have told my friends yeah. we got to reschedule, but <laughs> it goes back to having a team you trust. Yeah. And you I, know, do. I have partners you got that, that are great and do the work. So it's the, look at the freedom it gives you. It's, it's Absolutely. fantastic. Yeah. So Chris, you know, you and I had been talking and uh, off camera and one of the things is you've got kind of the kind of practice that most lawyers have and that I had for a lot of my career, which is most of your cases aren't wrongful death cases or quadriplegia cases, but they're the, uh, you know, what the majority of personal injury cases are, you know, hurt backs, hurt necks, maybe a broken bone here and there. What have you done to be able to really maximize the value of those cases? And what can our listeners do when they have those you know, regular cases. I mean, it's it's not that hard to get a seven-figure recovery on a death. Uh, someone died, but on a you know hurt neck that maybe needed surgery or a uh, broken broken bone. I mean, how do you get jurors motivated to give full value on those kind of cases? So I think the what you have to do is I, I would sit down and find the cases that you have really good plaintiffs, great people, okay, that you would want to be around, and then regardless what their injuries are. My experience is if they're good people, you can do a lot. So you, you take those and just dive into it and, and make a kind of um, burn the bones mentality of we're trying this case. The decision's already been made. And now it's easy to say because you can kind of go back and, 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 oh, well, maybe we could settle it now if they're offering 50 or 100 or whatever it is. I, I think if you make a strong line in the sand from the outset, you tell everybody in your office, these five, we're going to trial. Doesn't matter because we they're not, they're not going to pay us. And it's not worth it. And we, we can do some damage here. And so you, you find those good people, you find the people around them and you invest the time in the shoe leather and, and getting to know them um, and get out of the office and spend the time with them and try the case. You're going, I I'm convinced because in my experience has been, you can hit, you know, multi seven figure verdicts um, with great people and not have visible, huge catastrophic harms. That is awesome. That is inspiring. I want to make sure all my lawyers in the office, especially those that aren't handling a bunch of catastrophic cases, listen to this because I think that's true. And we got to, like I said, identify the clients where it can happen and then put the work in. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. Uh, hopefully our paths will cross again soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain they will. I'm certain they will, Michael. I appreciate you having me on here. Uh, you know, I always see your podcast and all these big names and stuff. And I'd be fully honest with you. I was, nervous. What can I add? You know, what, what can I add? And hopefully I can add that we all have practices like mine and um, there are, there's great opportunity within them. What you, what you added is not just your mindset, but you took a case that most lawyers would have settled for a hundred thousand dollars or, or give them five or 10, eight, you know, 90, $95,000. And instead you took it to seven fifty because you had the guts to try it and you're willing to put in the work to do it right. And that's inspiring. And I think that's very useful to me and to everyone else. Because uh, I still have those kind of cases sometimes too, and uh, thank you, and good luck to you, and I I look forward to seeing your career continue to blossom. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 
or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan. It is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.